a new Freedom Now movement. The great Caribbean revolutionary, Franz Fanon, wrote in his now classic work, The Wretched of the Earth, the following call to action. Each generation must, out of relative obscurity, discover its mission, fulfill it, or betray it in relative opacity. That mission is now before us. What mission? To free prisoners of the empire. Not just myself, but others, some of whom we all know, some of whom we know not. People like Jamil Abdullah Alameen, Mondo Ed Poindexter Langa, Sunjata Okoli, Leonard Peltier, Dr. Mutulu Shikur, Julian Assange, Sanachli, Reverend Joy Powell, and Daniel Hale. They were anti-racist and anti-imperialist prisoners of the empire. Each and all of us would embrace that now famous first point of the Black Panther Party's 10-point program, written by two young college students, October 1966. Huey T. Newton and Bobby Seale wrote, We want freedom. We want freedom. When they wrote those words, they echoed the hearts of millions. Today, now, over 50 years after these words were written, they still possess power and resonance. We want freedom. Let these words energize new movements today and enrich our living histories by reconnecting with the freedom struggles of our youth. Many of us are elders, yet we rejoice in the freedom movements emerging anew today as a result of the torture and murder of George Floyd. For true struggles endure from generation to generation. This call comes as mass incarceration has metastasized into a system that has bled state budgets dry and has resulted in the caging of the elderly and up till recently the juvenile population. It has also resulted in unbridled cruelty like women giving birth in shackles and chains, people being held in solitary confinement for decades. Surprisingly, prisons have become worse over time, not better, and bigger than we could even have imagined. We, therefore, need more prison support movements, not less, and prison abolition has to now be on the table. We want freedom. We want freedom. We want freedom. So say we all. Thank you, NUMSA. Thank you, Black Panther Party Commemoration Committee. Thank you, Labor Action Committee. Thank you all. In love and not fear, 
is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Prison Radio. This is Izel Robinson, inmate number 210006, a Minnesota inmate confined within the quadrilaterals of systemic injustice, fighting for justice and to be heard. But in order to be heard, I need you, the listeners, to hear me and act. Um, today I wanted to do a piece that I wrote called uh, Just Wake Up Before It's Too Late. It's more of like a, a spoken word type poetry type piece. Just wake up before it's too late. Invisible streams of tearless tears shedding the silence of displaced emotions that trickle hurt, pain, and anger until it consumes undeveloped scabs, exposing an unspoken trauma only seen in nightmares where survival is unpreserved. When the path to hope disappear and moments froze as if time could stand still or stiffen up in handcuffs and foot shackles just to be stripped of humanity and vote while left confined behind barbed wire and concrete tombs. Only if it was that easy to shake madness off entering into a new year with COVID and other old fears clouded with confusion because it's clear an end is far from near, knowing what it means to be living to die as arms are flooded with vaccine after vaccine. Still destruction isn't easing and global warming appears to be a valid reason. So just go ahead and continue to deny heightened man-made crimes for justice to become a lie. But this world is so cold too much violence exists because the hate continued to recycle. So there's no separation of moral rights and wrongs. Forget about the bended knees and folded hands, yet screams for change vibrate within protests that boomerangs off cries at vigils of the last victims memorialized on a wall mural. Could it be unforgettable faces to reveal why to be civil? Maybe it's a battle against choice when peace is something chose. Still seeing war before the trumpet blows, only echoes of gunshots in the aftermath of poor killing poor. Sad, because these days, the youth dying more and more. Out of the womb, no space for babies to grow, because American greed, too many so. And water with a lack of empathy until the heart's empty, void of reckoning when there's no clean slate. But never forget, life is at stake. Damn, just wake up before it's too late. These commentaries are recorded by Prison Radio. Uh, greetings of uh, peace, love, and solidarity. Uh, this is Uhuru Rowe speaking to you on this 22nd day of January 2022 for the Buckingham Correctional Center. In Delaware, Virginia, the purpose of this recording is to share light on some of our elders who have been in prison for 30 and 40 years and who face the very real possibility of dying behind these prison walls under a right-wing fascist state government whose first priority on day one was to fire the entire Virginia parole board that was giving incarcerated people second chances. Um, and then construct an entirely new parole board made up of former law enforcement individuals who opposed parole and second chances. The following is an interview with one of those incarcerated elders by the name of Pernia Jefferson, whom I met several years ago during my first stint at Buckingham. 
represent numerous elders in the Virginia prison system who are parole eligible under the so-called old law, who have served three or four decades in prison, have severe health complications, have completed all programming, are deemed low risk for recidivism, and yet have been repeatedly denied parole for arbitrary and capricious reasons. Uh, Brother Pernier, please state your name and prison number for the listeners. Attorney Jefferson, 101607. Uh, how, how old are you and how long have you been uh, in prison? I'm currently 58 years old and I've been in prison for 32 years now. Uh, talk, talk briefly about your life prior to prison. Uh, do you have a wife or uh, any children? I was single before I uh, was incarcerated, but I have a son who's in former law enforcement who's married. And I have two great, uh, great granddaughters. Uh, and before prison, were you? Do you consider yourself a family man? Were you a family man? Yes, I was a family man. I grew up around uh, six sets of aunts and about twenty or thirty different cousins, and I was always involved with them. And you also told me that you were a college graduate. Uh, what college did you attend, and what, did, what degree did you earn? I graduated uh, from Guilford College in 1986. I went to Guilford from 81 to 86 in Greensboro, North Carolina, with a BS degree in sports management. And what blew my mind is when you told me that you played in the NFL um, before you came to prison. What, what years did you play in the NFL and what team did you play for? I was signed out as a free agent with the Cleveland Browns of the AFC in 1985. I was on a two-year contract. The contract uh, didn't uh, end until... 86, and um, I was put, placed on reserve left squad. So this is a difficult part, which is, has always been difficult for me, but talk briefly about the crime, the circumstances of the crime um, that led to your incarceration uh, 32 years ago. I've taken full responsibility for my crime, and I'm remorseful for it. It was myself, along with three other accomplices, uh, broken in one of my, uh, my ex-girlfriend's home and abducted her. And um, on the way to back to Richmond, Virginia, her and I got into an argument and I struggled over the firearm. And I uh, regained the firearm from her and I shot her. Um, I've taken full responsibility. I've held myself accountable for uh, my actions over these years. Uh, and, and what were you charged with, and how much time did you did you receive? I was charged with murder and commission of robbery and breaking and entering. I received two consecutive life sentences. And you told me earlier that you and three other people uh, were involved in an incident, another black person and two white people, but that the two white defendants never came to prison. Why, why is that, and do you think race uh, ultimately played a role in that decision? The two white defendants got leniency. And the other black defendant, he was only sentenced to 10 years, and he made parole in the early 90s. Um, one can only uh, feel that race it was race-based because there was a black defendant against, um, had a white victim, and two white men uh, testified against me. Uh, yeah, because you have super second life sentences, um, you had to serve 25 years before you became eligible for parole. What year did you first become eligible for parole, uh, and what was the result of that? I first became eligible for parole in 2015, and three months later I was given a three-year deferral, which I can only come back up for parole in 2018. At that point in time, I was represented by Washington League Parole Clinic in Lexington, Virginia, and given another three-year deferral. came up for parole again in 2001 and was represented by the Criminal Justice Clinic from Washington League.
2021, excuse me, and represented by uh, the criminal justice clinic at Washington Lee, and I was just given a turn down uh, January 14, 2021. And you've been denied parole time and time again, despite having been classified as a low risk uh, for recidivism and having completed many, many programs um, and having a lot of support. Talk, talk about some of the programs you have completed in prison and some of the people who support your parole. The first program that I participated in was anger control management and gaming set 16. After that, I taught that particular program for seven years at Augusta Correctional Center. I also was a co-facilitator and founder of Educational Straight at Augusta that helped delinquent juvenile kids. I took Thank You For a Change, PREPS, which prepared for parole. I took Substance Abuse. I've taken Victim Impact. I've taken Aggressive Alternative Skills, Breaking Barriers. I've taken Comprehensive Offender Rehabilitation and DEAL, Developing Emotions, learn, Learning Values and Ethics. I also, while at Augusta, I taught a class at Mary Baldwin University. Me and four other guys, we taught the class uh, Prison and Punishment up under Dr. Carey at that point in time. The students would come into the, the facilities and we taught them at that particular time. Now, along the way, I've garnered many support people, including uh, journalist Steve Gagrich out of Manhattan, who's an investigative journalist, uh, the total community of Benson, North Carolina, where I'm from, um, former vice mayor of Appomattox, Mr. J.T. Williams, um, Minister... D.L. Borkin of North Carolina, Minister Terry Young, former FBI agent, which I cannot name at this particular time who I grew up with because I'm not at liberty to speak his, uh, give out his name. I've had uh, even support from the United States law enforcement. I've gotten support from the administration that was at Augusta and also at Buckingham, where I'm currently at, the treatment program coordinators, assistant ward offices also. In the, the elections that we just had this past November, November 2nd that resulted in the election of a Republican governor, Republican lieutenant governor, and a Republican um, attorney general, and also Republicans taking control of the Virginia House of Delegates. Uh, and the first agenda for the administration was to fire the prior parole board and replace them with the report, a parole board that's predominantly former law enforcement individuals. Talk about how difficult it is for individuals like yourself to make parole under this parole board. Well, when I first saw the parole board and saw the election leading up to the parole board, the theme was not uh, parole violent offenders. Well, when I was first sentenced, I was sentenced with the parole with the parole eligibility, and I've done everything that I have that uh, the Department of Corrections has asked me and of my charge to reform and rehabilitate myself in order to garner the, the privilege of being granted parole. But now with the new board that are in place, I don't really see um, a way out up under them for the next four years. So really it's going to take the power of the people uh, to pressure the existing administration to let brothers like yourself um, go back to your family and community. Um, so what is it that the people um, can do for you um, when you go off for your next parole hearing, which is scheduled for this upcoming July and August? Um, basically, what, what is it that people can do to show that support for you um, in your parole? I would like for you to 
contact the parole board at 804-674-3081. Call in and support me. I would like to also ask you to call the governor's office at 804-786-2211 and send support letters to my representative, uh, Mr. Tommy Bishop, and his email address is smallcaps, T-O-M-M-Y, at Henrico, H-E-N-R-I-C-O, lawyer, L-A-W-Y-E-R dot com. Just to, just to reiterate uh, what Brother Fernandez said, he said that he needs people to call uh, the Virginia Parole Board at 804-674-3081. Uh, also called into the governor's office at 804-674-3284 um, and just express your general support for his upcoming parole here and urge them to release him on parole. And he also needs you all to write support letters on his behalf um, and send copies of those support letters to his attorney um, and uh, T-O-M-M-Y at com. Um, and you can put in the, sub the subject line support letter for for Pernil. Um, this is the end of the interview. I hope um, that you all will be moved and inspired by his story um, to reach out um, on his behalf and pressure those in power who have the power to set him free to uh, give him a second chance to go back to his community. Uh, thank you for listening, um, and we thank you in advance for your support. What's up, everybody? It's Uptown Surge. I got another one for you right now. Last year, Philly's gun violence epidemic pushed the homicide rate to new heights. Nobody seems to be safe from becoming a potential victim. Sitting in my small, dark prison cell deep within the bowels of the state penitentiary, I can't help but to cringe every time that I see a report on the news where another person was shot to death. My initial response is always a grieving empathy for the victim and their family because nobody deserves to experience such a tragedy. But then I find myself grieving for those responsible for pulling the trigger, because in my mind, I have no doubt that those young people pulling the trigger have absolutely no idea what their future holds. And that's the heart of this crisis. I can assure you that most young people who grow up immersed in the inner city culture don't think twice about the potential consequences of their actions. I'm living proof of that. I owned my first gun when I was 12 years old, and I've been in prison for 20 years straight, convicted of third-degree murder. It wasn't that I didn't care about harming myself or others or my community, and it wasn't that I didn't care about coming to prison, but rather those potential consequences didn't outweigh the potential power and respect I thought I'd earned by being a gun-toting gangster. My actions destroy lives, and the same is happening to the young people in our community who are only yearning for the very same respect, appreciation, and love that all human beings must have in order to be productive members of the human race. When a teenager is willing to risk their own life in order to feel wanted, appreciated, respected, and valued, that isn't a teenager problem. It's a societal problem. And one of the biggest reasons why we can't reach these young people is because we're too busy blaming them, criticizing them, reminding them of their worthlessness. 
is there really any surprise they aren't listening? Accountability is necessary. Pointing fingers is not. We can do better. At some point, we all must accept responsibility for what's taking place in our city because all behavior is learned behavior. For years, I've worked relentlessly mentoring young men in and out of prison who seem to be enamored with the street culture. Right here at SCI Chester, the administration allows us to create the safe spaces necessary for true conversation and leadership. And a common theme among the younger guys is a feeling of hopelessness and despair. It's my belief that they feel this way because they don't know what their options are. And when it comes to teaching them what their options are, they won't trust just anybody. Therefore, if city leaders really want to curb this violent trend without building more prisons, they must allow people such as myself to do the leading. Because people in my position have been on both sides. We've done it all. And through God's grace, we've made it to the point of positive self-revolution. It isn't good enough for us to simply tell our stories. We have to be examples of what success looks like. We have to be providers of opportunities for that success. Let's not forget that youth is a barrier to understanding. Our young people have to be shielded as they grow into maturity. There are countless men and women in prison who've taken on the burdensome responsibility of mentoring on the inside, and we don't do it for recognition. However, when we come home, we need the city to invest in us as well if we're to continue trying to set things straight. So far, as I look at the actions the city has taken to reverse this negative culture, it seems as if they've included everybody except for those who actually understand it the best. So I urge everybody to dig deep and come up with better solutions to this problem. And the best way to do so is by involving everybody, including those who perpetrated these crimes. To learn how the Human Rights Coalition is working to make our communities safer, visit hrcoalition.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Uptown Surge, and you can follow me on Instagram at Uptown Surge. These commentaries are recorded by Prison Radio.